0: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we conclude our series for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We'll talk about the importance of screenings, the emotional toll of a diagnosis, and we'll hear personal stories. And all that's next, but first we'll begin with this. The head of Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is calling on adults to get vaccinated as federal regulators get closer to authorizing shots for children. Dr. Rochelle Walensky says surrounding kids with vaccinated folks helps reduce their risk of infection.
1: It's important that we continue to vaccinate as many adults as possible to provide protection to children in the community, especially those who may not be eligible for vaccination
2: themselves.
0: Dr. Walensky went on to say it's also important for unvaccinated kids to continue masking, to wash their hands and to avoid large crowds. She says more than 60 million Americans are eligible for vaccination, but they have yet. To get the shot, federal regulators are currently considering authorizing Pfizer's COVID 19 vaccine for kids 5 to 11 years of age. In other news, Governor Brian Kemp could be facing a major challenge from inside his own party and its former Georgia U.S. Senator David Perdue. The Atlanta Journal Constitution is reporting that Perdue has called donors and other allies about the idea. Governor Kemp's campaign expressed disappointment about a possible run. Spokesman Tate Mitchell says Purdue had personally told Kemp that he would fully support Kemp's re-election campaign. Purdue is considered a strong ally of former President Donald Trump. Last month, during a rally at the Georgia National Fairgrounds, Trump talked up Purdue.
1: I don't know. Are you gonna run for Governor David Purdue? Are you gonna run for governor? Where's David Purdue? Stand up, David. David Purdue. Are you running for governor, David? Did I hear he's running for
0: governor? Serving only one term, David Perdue was defeated by Senator John Ossoff back in January. And finally, if you can win one of the first two, that's not bad, says Atlanta Braves manager Brian Snitker. The Houston Astros beat the Braves last night at Minute Maid Park.
2: You know, obviously you want to win two, but if you get out of here with a split, then that's a good thing, going home.
0: That's right, coming home. The Braves return to Truist Park. Game three is tomorrow night, first pitch at 8.09. Then game four is Saturday night, same time. By the way, I'm not worried because Nicholas the Dolphin has assured Braves fans who will win.
1: Well, they communicate lots of different ways. Um, commonly, you'll hear clicks and whistles
3: that they can emit from their foreheads and melons or their blowholes. And um, they can also communicate um, using their body language.
0: Nicholas is a rescued dolphin at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium. And Nick, I call him Nick, has chosen the Atlanta Braves to defeat the Houston Astros. Now, Nicholas was presented with two baseball hats, one with the logo of the Braves and one with the Astros. He selected a winning team by touching the hat featuring the Braves logo. Now, we should note, Nicholas is only two for three in his World Series picks. So I'm not sure you should place a bet based on Nick, the Dolphins pick. Still, Nicholas has chosen the Braves. Hmm. Closer look continues in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, breast cancer, it's the second most common cancer among women in the U.S., and it's estimated here in the U.S., every 13 minutes, a woman dies from breast cancer. And quite often, the screening recommendation is for women aged 40 to 44. And women 45 to 54 should get mammograms every year. We begin today's Breast Cancer Awareness Program about a, talking about a new campaign from the CDC. And its target audience may be surprising.
3: Breast cancer just doesn't happen to someone that's 75 years old. I went through total eight rounds of chemotherapy, double mastectomy, and then I went through 33 rounds of radiation. I tested positive for the BRCA2 mutation. Being proactive in your health is definitely the most important thing. Talk to your doctor. There isn't just one face to breast cancer.
0: That is Charity, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 27. And it's also from the Bring Your Brave campaign. And joining me now with more is Allie Maureen, the health communication specialist with the CDC and the campaign manager. Allie, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here.
0: With this Bring Your Brave campaign, is this the first time you all are focusing on a specific population um, that might be at risk for breast cancer?
1: Yeah, the Break Your Brave campaign um, began in 2015, and yes, it really was uh, an opportunity to focus on um, the percentage of of women of breast cancers that are diagnosed in women under the age of 45. So. Uh, most breast cancers are diagnosed in older women, but in rare cases, it can affect women under the age of 45. And these breast cancers are more likely to be hereditary. Mm-hmm. They're also more likely to be found at a later stage when it's often more aggressive and difficult to treat. So yes, this is the the first time that um, we really had a focused campaign on, on a, a different audience for breast
0: cancer. And since we're talking about this, let's say, under 30 age, I, I'm a Imagining that there are different types of platforms that you all are using. That was a PSA, but I'm, I imagine social media is a big mm. part of this campaign. Exactly.
1: I mean, the goal is really to reach these young women where they are, and they are um, absolute digital natives. And um, we're constantly retooling the campaign and working on the the spaces where um, they'll be most receptive to this type of content. So it's a largely digital campaign. Um, so We use many social media platforms to reach those audiences um yeah it's it's hugely important to make sure that we're aware of where they're most active and most receptive to those messages and that's a a big part of the campaign
0: and in that clip that we played featuring charity Mm. you all are using folks not using folks but these are folks who are giving their personal Mm. stories who are of that population that makes sense
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, the campaign really intends to use the real stories about young women whose lives have been affected by breast cancer, to bring to life the idea that breast cancer can affect young women. And, you know, even perhaps equally as important, there are actions you can take to understand your risk, to manage your risk, to kind of um, mitigate those outcomes. So, yeah, through the testimonials of women like Charity, who is a young breast cancer survivor, mm-hmm. and also young women who have found out that they're um, BRCA or BRCA positive and have a family history. We um, we really aim to inspire other young women to learn about their risk for breast cancer and to to take their concerns and their family history to their healthcare providers so that um, they can have a, a better sense of their risk and how to manage it.
0: And Elia, I do want to shift for a moment because there's a. this is personal mm-hmm. for you as well. Do you mind sharing for our listeners what you can?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, cancer and even breast cancer specifically, I think so many people are affected by this and so many families and, you know, I think most people know someone, right, who this has affected. For me, I have a very strong family history of breast cancer on my father's side of the family, mm-hmm. and I am actually a BRCA1 gene mutation carrier myself. So, I know firsthand the toll it takes on a family when there is this sort of undercurrent of cancer throughout the your family health history. But I also know firsthand how powerful it feels to know that there is something I can do about that and I feel every day I have an opportunity to do something that my grandmother didn't have the opportunity to do. So I understand my risk, and I work with my healthcare providers on the best approach to mitigate and manage that, and um, I can really sort of prevent myself potentially from getting breast and ovarian cancer. And um, so, yeah, the work is really personal to me, and that is uh, something that serves as a drive and an inspiration every day in this work for sure.
0: Uh, the voice you hear is Allie Mooring. She's a health communication specialist with the CDC and the campaign manager for bring your brave campaign, which focuses on uh, educating women about breast cancer, probably under the age of 30. Let me ask you this, Allie, how do you all gauge the effectiveness of this campaign? It's been around for since 2015.
1: It has. Yes. Yes. Um, we, you know, we do a lot of, um, measuring of how, how the reach, you know, as you mentioned, we, we work a lot in the digital space. So we, we measure every single thing that we do and see um, if we're reaching the right audiences. And we also do research focus groups and things like that to make sure that our materials are resonating with the right women, um, these women under the age of 45 and, um, you know, just just to constantly keep ourselves in check, the the landscape is constantly evolving. Whether it's the digital landscape itself or just the the knowledge and beliefs among this population, so we really do our best to stay on top of that with with research and um, measurement tools to to see that to make sure that our materials are resonating with them.
0: And what about with within that under 45 age group? Also for specific ethnic groups as well, because we know that Black women have a higher mortality rate than their white counterparts with breast cancer. Do you have any specific campaigns for specific populations?
1: Yes, this campaign um, has a really strong directive to make sure that we are um, making black women aware of their risks. So black women under the age of 35, um, the campaign reaches women under 45 overall, but black women under the age of 35 um, are diagnosed with breast cancer at rates that are two times higher than their white counterparts. So The campaign really does aim to educate those women that they need to understand their family history. They need to have those uncomfortable, sometimes uncomfortable conversations with Mm -hmm. family members. Um, A lot of families are really private about this. So it's it's an ask, you know, to really try to Open, open your family, their hearts and minds to these conversations. So, yeah, bl- yes, Black women are at higher risk for breast cancer at a younger age. And also um, women of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, one in mm-hmm. 40 women of Ashkenazi Jewish descent are at risk of having a BRCA or BRCA gene mutation. So they're also sort of a, a population that we focus on. The campaign overall is really intended to reach all, all young mm-hmm. women ages 18 to 44 because you can fall outside of those populations, certainly, and be at risk. But yes, those, those two populations in particular are um, a focus of the campaign.
0: You mentioned earlier that you all often retool the campaign and make sure you are reaching folks in those spaces where they're likely to be. Uh, you anticipate retooling again. And if so, what does that look like?
1: We are constantly, as I said, um, retooling and optimizing um, things that we're doing, Um, And also just the type of content that we're putting out there. I think as more and more women become a little more aware and and brave enough to have those family risk conversations, um, oftentimes we run into them being the first in their family to discover that. So, you know, we're working on tools to also help those women start the conversations with other family members so that those family members can understand their risk. So um, that's a piece of content we're working on. We're also... um, working with writers in the entertainment industry to encourage informative and educational Mm storylines about breast cancer and young women um, in the entertainment that these young women are consuming. So your TV shows, um, mobile games and apps. Um, So we're really constantly you know, the way that young women consume media and the way and really the way that they want to be spoken to about health messages, it does change and evolve. So we're really constantly trying to adapt to be to meet them where they are.
0: And Allie, before we wrap up again, I just want you to give that. I'm going to ask all the guests on today's show about this in terms of what's that that one message you want to get across to our listeners for this special edition of Closer Look as we focus on breast cancer.
1: For young women, it's really, it's it's just it's so important to learn about the breast cancer risk that or the breast cancer that runs on both sides of your family. I used myself as an example. Um, It's my dad's side of the family that I inherited the BRCA gene mutation, and that's a a miss. You know, a lot of people think, well, if it's not in my mom's family, I don't have to be concerned. So we just always want to make sure that you're looking into the that family health history on both sides of your family. Dig and dig and have those on sometimes uncomfortable conversations with family members. Find the family member that might be most willing to talk and, and kind of get the information you need. Take all of that stuff that you learn and bring it to your provider and see if you may be a candidate for genetic counseling and testing or just help have that provider help you understand your risk. Because the main thing I want young women to know is that there is something you can do about it and there are ways that you can manage your risk.
0: And we're going to talk about some conversations coming up in just a moment. Allie Mooring is a health communication specialist with the CDC and campaign manager for the Bring Your Brave campaign. Allie, thank you so much for what you all are doing with this campaign. And um, we're going to come back and talk to you if, if you want to. If you want to hang around and, and, and join the conversation, you're more than welcome to stay.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In a special edition of Closer Look today, we're talking about breast cancer. And of course, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we know that a diagnosis of any kind of disease or anything can trigger a number of emotions. So as we, conclu- as we continue with our special, we're going to focus on the mental and emotional toll after being diagnosed with breast cancer. Dr. Wendy Bear sees patients after they have been diagnosed. Now, she's the Director of Psychiatric Oncology at the Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University, as well as a number of other titles that are a lot, so I won't go <laughs> through all of them. But Dr. Bear, welcome to the program, and thanks so much for taking the time.
4: I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for... Um, doing an episode on this topic.
0: And, you know, in, in speaking with uh, Allie earlier from the CDC, and she talked about how probably so m- many of us are e- either directly affected or indirectly affected. I remember I lost a really good friend some years ago to to breast cancer. And, you know, often we think about the physicalness of this. But, you know, there is a, an emotional, obviously, and, and, and a, a mental toll here. Dr. Baer, typically, how are patients referred to you? Well,
4: um, thank you for asking the question about my practice. And let me start by saying I'm sorry to hear about your friend and her passing. Sometimes our treatments don't match up with what we need them to do. At Winship Cancer Institute, which is part of Emory University in healthcare, um, people are seen by a number of specialists when they're diagnosed with cancer um, not only the oncology team including the medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist or surgeon, but also support people like social workers, spiritual health professionals, dietitians, nurse navigators and in that process um, sometimes, the mental health concerns come up mm-hmm. um, we have an instrument called a cancer distress screening. And when folks fill that out, if their distress is marked as high, they're sometimes referred to my practice. It mm-hmm. can be because of worry, because of sadness. It can be because of sleep problems, all kinds of um, contributors to distress that we try to address while they're getting their treatment for cancer at Winship.
0: And I want to get your opinion on this because I'm, I'm curious. I wonder has this all I might know the answer to this. I'm wondering, has this always been the case? And you think about for decades, decades ago when someone was given a diagnosis like this, if there was a, a pathway for them to receive, you know, mental and, and, and emotional health resources for this.
4: I don't think it's always been the case, yeah. but I think we've gotten better over time, certainly over the last year and a half in appreciating the need to address our mental health Um, with the stress of the pandemic, the social justice movement, lots of national themes that have been upsetting for people. And really taking care of our mental health is meant for better quality of life and being more productive, both at work and at home or in relationships. Fortunately, in the cancer community, there's been a big effort to create comprehensive centers where we address not only the physical needs of the patient to interrupt the cancer process, but also the emotional, spiritual, and mental health needs that people have as they're going through cancer. Because we realize it's a huge life interruption. Mm -hmm. It it takes up a lot of time and energy to get treated for cancer. And that comes with an emotional toll for some people. Um, It is quite a unique journey that folks go through on their cancer um, pathway. And so we wanna be sure to tailor our interventions and our assistance uh, to what people need.
0: And it's going to be different for for every patient. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bear, what are some of those typical first conversations you you have with with patients? What can you share?
4: Well, I think any good therapist hopefully starts by listening. Um what was it that got you to come in today? What was it that was on your mind when you made this appointment? And so hopefully we all start with with listening people come into their cancer diagnosis with all kinds of life experiences, sometimes medical, sometimes they've had early life trauma, unfortunately, and this can be another trauma that then aggravates earlier life experience, memories, um, maybe even making people suspicious of the medical community. And we Mm -hmm. wanna try and address those issues around trust right away, so they feel like they can fully engage in treatment that they need for cancer. Um, Sometimes it's um, old stories they've heard about cancer. They may have heard about a parent or a grandparent or a friend having gone through cancer and they're worried about having a similar experience. We want to be sure to get back to recognizing what is their diagnosis? What is their treatment plan? What are their strengths? um, What's going to be protective to them as they go through their treatment?
0: And I have some emails coming in already, and and folks should know, just, you know, disclaimer, while we know Dr. Bear is an expert in this, we also encourage you to to seek out some resources for yourself. But I'll try to get to a couple of these emails. You know, Dr. Bear, I I read a piece that talked about feelings of depression are common uh, when patients and, and family members are coping with cancer and that it is normal to feel sadness and grief and that folks should not dismiss that whether you are the family member or the patient.
4: Yeah, we are not robots. Humans are wired to feel emotions, some of us more so than others. Um, I often in practice will say, hey, crying under these circumstances or under a lot of circumstances is a, sometimes a healthy response. This can be a grieving process for some people, something they thought maybe would never happen to them. Um, it's normal to be worried when you have a health crisis or somebody's telling you you have to go through some treatment, it's normal to be concerned about what's going to happen. We start to think about mental health problems and getting treatment if that sadness or crying is all day, if it stops you from feeling like you're a worthwhile person that deserves to get help, if it leaves you with horrible guilt that all of this is your fault and you should be blamed for everything, Mm -hmm. that's kind of in the depressive Space where we want to think about clinical treatment um, for depression, and the same with the worry. If the worry stops you from going into clinic, or the worry mm-hmm. stops you from paying attention to other aspects of your life, or interrupts your sleep, that's when we want to think about clinical attention for what may be an anxiety disorder.
0: And Dr. Bear, you also see the family members as well, or, or spouses. Do you, is that
4: well? I I like to remind myself that people may come in to see us in clinic for an appointment but they live in a home or apartment or another setting with other people Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's one primary caregiver, um, other times it's a couple of people that are intimately involved in the identified patient's life. And we like to pay attention to what the caregiver's experiences are, too, because we know when our caregivers are healthy and feel supported, they can do more for the person who's getting treated for cancer.
0: I have a listener says, Rose, can you ask the doctor what people should, how people should not react when they're told by a loved one they have breast cancer? I don't know. Can you
4: talk about that? Oh, your listener um, has uh, been through some things, I imagine. Yeah. I hear this quite a lot, that there's. A great deal of distress related to how other people react to your diagnosis. And so, whether it's people seem to be shocked and horrified, or whether they ask too many questions that seem to be more about them than about you, mm. or whether they don't show up. And it's really hurtful and disappointing when you think somebody's a close friend or confidant or should be the family member to show up and, and doesn't. So in the mental health space, we do a lot of work, whether it's me or with one of our um, very highly trained social workers or nurses um, of helping people realize that there are folks that get it, that there are people whose reactions will feel more like a match, more Mm -hmm. soothing than Mm -hmm. some, and maybe managing that disappointment yourself. It's really hard to change another person, but you can Mm -hmm. certainly manage the disappointment um, and start to think about what would healthy friendships or relationships look like like maybe this could be a chance to really think on that um, something you hadn't thought about before even in the setting of a crisis like cancer
0: and i want to follow up because i think for some people when they after they've been diagnosed they then maybe they don't want to tell a lot of people because they don't want to deal with that sympathy look or they don't want to deal with the mm-hmm. what can i do and we know that folks mean well but sometimes mm-hmm. when folks mean well <laughs> they're not yeah. you know
4: yeah yeah yeah, it is your private health information. And unfortunately not everybody's gonna handle your private health information in your best interest, whether it's your psychological interests or your employment interests or your um, work-related uh, negotiations, So it is your private health information. It is one of the things that people tell me often so hard about folks who lose their hair through treatment because it becomes hard to not, um, talk about, because mm-hmm. people see the hair and think about um, chemotherapy. Um, I encourage people to have a line when it's something that comes up and folks want to know, well, what do you have? What's going to happen? You yeah. say, well, thanks for asking. Um, I've got a great team of doctors. I've got a great support system. And I just would love to hear about what's going on with you today. And so you sort of shift the conversation. If you know it's somebody that's not going to be part of your your inner circle that you need to share some of the more private information details with.
0: Well, Dr. Bear, let's take that the other way. What if someone doesn't have a support system and and they possibly could be going through this, you know, by themselves.
4: On their own. And some people are, they absolutely are. And some people pride themselves on being very independent, not wanting to ask for help for rides, for meals, Um, We we work with that. Um, Our culture may value independence, but the truth is, as humans, we need other people, and we function best when we're connected to other people. Fortunately, in the cancer community, there's a lot of supports, whether it's a young adult dealing with cancer, which is under 40, and they decide to connect with a young adult survivor coalition, for Mm -hmm. instance, or whether somebody decides to match up with a peer partner, sometimes based on the type of cancer you have or the treatment you have, some of the cancer support organizations like the Winship Cancer Institute will have a peer partner program. And then other people decide to turn to like a group that's maybe not only cancer specific, but is um, of an interest that they have, Mm -hmm. whether it's a shared interest in a hobby or a sport or a community service project, but we really work on figuring out how to connect with other people, because we know folks, um, all of us uh, need help along the way. And we do better when we feel connected to other people.
0: The voice you hear is Dr. Wendy Baer. She's the director of the psychiatric oncology at Winship, Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University. And this is part of our special edition of Closer Look as we focus on breast cancer awareness. And right now we're in a conversation talking about the mental and emotional toll of being diagnosed with the disease. I have a listener here who says, how do you tell your kids this news?
4: Yeah, then this is for parents um, or people um, that have young folks in their life, if they're nieces or nephews or neighbors. um, I think we want to be aware that kids are looking and they're listening and they're a little more clever than we sometimes give them credit for. And so if they ask a question, we want to try and answer it um, maybe simply, maybe plainly um, in language that's appropriate for the age of the child. Uh, Trying to pretend like it's not happening usually doesn't work with kids because they're pretty clever and they figure yeah. things out. I encourage parents to think about how they're coping with managing their medical crisis and doing their job of parenting their resources through schools. Um, there's um, cancer-specific resources for kids whose parents are going through cancer treatment. Um, one is a c- program called Cline. Another is a summer program called Camp Kesem that's run by University. Hmm. students um, across the country, actually. So we can um, wait for kids to ask us. We can ask kids if they have any questions, but we need to stick at at their level. You know, we Mm -hmm. don't have to do the adult explanation for a six, seven or eight year old.
0: Dr. Bear, how long have you been in this practice? I have
4: been at Winship Cancer Institute since 2011. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was working in a cancer center in Seattle, um, listening to people's experiences dealing with cancer.
0: And how do you, if you don't mind me asking, I, I, all of a sudden I'm turning the tables. How do you, um, suggest dealing coping with this yourself when you're working with and talking to so many people, I guess, you know, what is your coping mechanism in all of this? Cause I know you hear all some, of this. Yeah.
4: Well, I think that's a lovely question and thank you for asking. Um, I find a great deal of beauty in watching people get through these experiences. They may not know they're going to get through in the beginning. They might not realize that their cancer is treatable, manageable, that there are many days ahead of really good quality of life. And so witnessing that to me is, is pretty inspiring. I'm so glad you asked the question right now because in our healthcare communities, whether it be physicians or nurses Mm -hmm. or phlebotomists or techs, there's a great deal of burnout because it's been a long pandemic and the people that are working in clinic spaces really have wanted to do their jobs, um, managing people's health crisis and dealing with cancer. But it's been hard because there's also complications around vaccines and mask mandates and we just really wanna give a shout out to everybody that's stuck with it in the um, healthcare arena um, through this very long pandemic, which we hope is coming to a close as people get vaccinated and stay yeah. healthy.
0: Uh, I have another, but it's more of a comment from a listener who says that reaffirming messages around the house helped me a lot, Rose.
4: That's a wonderful point about helpful thinking. So there's many kinds of psychotherapy and one kind of psychotherapy deals specifically with your thoughts. And it's not always very helpful to think about what's gonna happen five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, but it can be really helpful to look at what you accomplished today. Mm -hmm. What honestly did you get done today? You got out of bed, that's a start. You took the dog out, that's number two. You made a phone call to a friend and encouraged them, that's number three. Like, These are moments that matter. And so if we can pay attention to the things that we are doing Um, it may be more helpful in terms of managing our distress around some of our medical challenges.
0: Dr. Bears, we wrap up. What is one or two messages you want to leave with listeners today?
4: I hope people recognize that whether you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis or a mental health diagnosis, that treatment is available. These are evidence-based treatments um, that uh, can help you feel better, can help you stay healthy and the people working in healthcare want to hear from you and want to know what your goals are so that we can do the healthcare thing so you can go out and take care of your goals. If you've been home during the pandemic, avoiding COVID, please now make your appointment for your mammogram, your colonoscopy, your pap smears, uh, your skin exams. Let's um, get back on track with um, taking care of our health um, at this point.
0: I do have one more question from a listener who wants to know, are there resources for people who are underinsured or have no insurance for physical, for mental and, and, you know, mental health needs?
4: I'm so glad she said that. And I almost feel guilty that I didn't say that when you asked if I wanted to say anything else. So the Georgia Crisis and Access Line, which is available for referrals as well as um, mental health emergencies, is one 800 715 or 225. Mm-hmm. If you are in a life-threatening situation, obviously 911 or the hospital, and then for people who have any thoughts um, related to self-harm or they just can't make it through another day, there is a national suicide hotline, and you can call 1-800-273-TALK, or you can text HOME to 741741 to talk to somebody if you're in a suicidal crisis.
0: Good information. Thank you so much, Dr. Wendy Baer, the Director of Psychiatric Oncology at Winship Cancer Institute at Emory University. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for sharing all this information.
4: Absolutely. Thank you for doing the show.
0: And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we conclude today's special program and month-long series on breast cancer, I'm joined now by the city of Clarkston mayor, Beverly Burks, and also Jill Lawler. She's an audiologist and a cyclist. And both are going to share their story. And we've also invited Dr. Bear back and Allie back. So anyone that wants to chime in, we're going to have just a excuse me, fellas, bear with us. The the ladies, we're just going to have a good old-fashioned chat. So. We appreciate that. Uh, Mayor Burks, thank you so much for taking the time. Jill, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Mayor Burks, I want to start with you. Um, Take us back to the day of your breast cancer diagnosis.
2: Well, it was Labor Day weekend 2019. And I hadn't done my normal monthly self-examination. And so I said, I'm going to take a little extra time. And when I did, I found a lump. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Oh, this is not supposed to be there." And from that point on, I have gone through this journey of, of going through breast breast uh, breast cancer and just dealing with that whole process. And so it, it's it's been an enlightening experience, especially because I spent part of my treatment pre COVID, and then having my treatment during COVID right? And mm-hmm. so it, it's, it, it's been a journey. Uh, I will say that I have been so grateful for my friends and my family and my co-workers and everyone who bonded around me. And when I went through it, I really said to myself, hey, whatever I have to do to get through this, I'm going to do it. And I had such a positive attitude because I wanted to make sure Part of the healing process is not only the physical piece, but it's also the mental piece. Which is what Dr.
0: Bear was talking about.
2: And she is so correct. So my first chemo session, I was my my friend, Shay, I I will say she was my ride or die chica. And (laughs) I said, you know what, I'm putting poison in my body. And so I said, I'm going to dance this out. And so I started dancing at my chemo. So I danced off of Bebib DeVoe Poison. So every chemo session.
0: <laughs> you up there doing I, a running man, Mayor Burks. I was doing it. I was doing it. I was
2: doing it. And so so every session I had a theme that I danced off of. And I was like, I'm going to dance this cancer out of me. I'm just going to dance it out. And so I I did, and, you know, I went through my, I had a double mastectomy um, with with my treatment. And then I had the audacity during COVID, during cancer, to run for mayor at the same time, right? And so I ran for mayor while I was going through my treatments, and I won. I rang the bell, and it's been a year, Mm -hmm. October 26 marks a year that I went through all my treatment, and I rang the bell won the election and got sworn in on my birthday, November 30th, last wow. year.
0: Thank you so much for sharing.
2: Thank you.
0: I'm still trying to picture you, you know, doing a running man or a WAP.
2: Oh, I was doing it. I was doing everything. <laughs> I was Cabbage patch, all of it. Got it.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. Jill, I want to bring you to the conversation. Um, tell our listeners, take us through the day you were diagnosed.
3: Sure. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Um Everything's still pretty new for me. I'm still in the middle of everything. So Mm -hmm. I got diagnosed on May 7th of this year. Um, I'm only 32. So it was kind of out of nowhere. I wasn't really expecting it. I don't have family history, that kind of thing. So everything goes really quickly once you get diagnosed. Um, I did five months of chemo. And right now I'm in the middle ground where I just finished chemo three weeks ago. And I, today's actually my last day of work before I'm off for my double mastectomy, November 11th. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is kind of good timing for this. It's, you know, it's a big day for me. I'm wrapping everything up and then moving on to the next, the next phase of treatment. So it's been a long six months. And I think I've got a long road ahead still. Yeah.
0: Well, and we hope some of the conversations today uh, will be helpful. I think that they will. You heard Dr. Baird talk about a support system. You heard Beverly, uh, Mayor Burks talk about a support system. Um, I ask, and you have a pretty good support system, Jill.
3: Um, yeah, I have the most wonderful support system. I have so many people taking care of me and exactly what everyone says. One thing I didn't realize before this is how much work it takes to be sick. You know, I'm very fortunate. I've... I've always been very healthy. Um, You know, you can catch me out on my bike any day of the week. Um, I do all the things you're supposed to do. I don't have any chronic illnesses. It's not something I've experienced before. Mm -hmm. And so that was definitely a big learning was how much work it takes and how many people you need to help you get through those types of things. They're so vital and they're so underappreciated.
0: Dr. Bear, if you're still with us, I just want to get you to, you hear what uh, Mayor Burks and what Jill talked about. I guess we can't stress enough about having a support system and if you are a support system from someone for someone who has been diagnosed with cancer just how important that is how you can really what you really can mean for that individual you do it the right Absol- way
4: <laughs> absolutely yeah the right way not, not all caregivers are created equal and we really are so blessed by some people who are very skillful at caregiving and other people who struggle to figure out how to do it and I just like I said this work kind of is so meaningful to me when I get to see people helping people. And if you are a listener right now and don't feel like you have a great support network, um, there are plenty of you out there too. It's just a matter of figuring out who that can be. And so please speak up to your nurse or your oncologist or your social worker and let them know that you're looking for some healthy support people. I think Mayor Burke said um, something that really um, uh, reminded me of how important it is to find your thing I mean, your thing may be music, your thing may be dance, your thing may be art, but we don't want to let this job, as Joe was saying, of managing cancer, the stress of your health problems, the financial challenges, the insurance challenges, we don't want this to take over your entire mind. And so if you can really find your thing, um, a hobby, an activity, um, that that can help you sort of persist in getting Mm -hmm. through this. One other thing I heard a little bit of, too, was this gratitude, you know, this gratitude for caregiving support, gratitude for medical teams, um, and that gratitude practice can also help ease a lot of mental distress.
0: And Dr. Bear, I hear what you're saying. I want to go back to Jill and Mayor Burks for a second. And Jill, I'll start with you. Given what we just heard with, with Dr. Bear talking about finding something, you know, f- continuing to do that, that hobby, you are an, a cyclist, you know. I, are you still able to do that? And I, are you not abandoning that? Is what I'm, I guess, I'm asking.
2: Um,
3: the amount of biking that I've been able to do while I've been really sick has been a lot lower. Mm-hmm. But I, one goal I did set for myself was that I wanted to ride my bike to all of my chemo sessions. Um, I don't own a car. And it's, you had mentioned earlier about people want to be independent. And I didn't want to have to rely on people every single week to drive me to chemo. So, I mean, my team was wonderful. They found a safe place. I would bring my bike up to the seventh floor of Piedmont Cancer Institute and they'd put it in a safe little corner for me. So I didn't have to worry about it getting stolen while I'm in there for, you know, four Mm -hmm. hours. Um, and I finished chemo on October 5th and I managed to bike to and from every session without having to call anyone for a ride. And that was when I first started, that felt like a really overwhelming goal. So it felt good when I was done to have, you know, that activity, that thing that I could look forward to and feel like I had done something and that cancer wasn't taking everything and <laughs> taking all of those hobbies and all of that from me.
0: And I know that uh, Allie is still listening in. But Allie, if you want to chime in, feel free. Or if not, that, that's cool, too. But um, Mayor Burks, uh, actually, let me go back to Allie. Allie, what do you want to say in hearing these stories?
1: You know, I just wanted to, um, first of all, thank you to Mayor Burks and Jill for sharing your stories. But um, something that Jill said about the amount of work that it takes um, to, to you know, be sick with cancer just sort of sparked, um, you know, something I was thinking about, about, you know, especially young women when they're diagnosed with cancer, it has so many effects on their careers and their finances and things like fertility. So a lot of what Dr. Baer was talking about, some of those issues are um, really compounded when you're a younger um, breast cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just appreciate Jill, you sharing that story. And I know that a lot of other young women are dealing with uh, very similar things.
0: Thank you so much. And Mayor Burks, I want to bring you back into this conversation. Uh, if you can, what message do you want to give to to Jill? Aren't you anyone else listening?
2: This journey is something where you can have a positive attitude about it. And I think that's the most important thing that I learned throughout this process is that your attitude will help you get through it just as much as enduring the physical component of it and making sure that you don't feel like it's okay to need somebody to help with things. It's okay if you sometimes want to feel private about your situation. However you want to deal with this journey is up to you. And so the most important thing for you, Jill, is that congratulations, you know, you went through the hard part. Um, and we're, we're gonna make sure in terms of that double mastectomy and everything else, is, you're gonna be good, it's good. And so I think for me, making sure that people understand this journey is a way to learn more about yourself and to make sure that you take it from a positive perspective to say, These are the things that I can do to be a stronger, better person. And that's what I took from it. Everything that I could do to be a stronger person, I did. Everything, um, I'll bring this point that's, that's, you know, Dr. Beer was even talking about. One of the hardest things was telling my friends and my family that I had cancer. Because I'm the one with the cancer, but I was consoling people about me having cancer which was, (laughs) and, and Jill, you may relate to that as well. It is a real interesting phenomenon that you're going through all of these changes, but the people who are close to you, you're consoling them saying, it's okay. I'm gonna be okay. We're gonna get through it. They're crying. You're like, but I'm the one that's gotta go through the chemo, right? And so it's just all of those things, making sure that you take care of your mental health, making sure that you do things like, if you're looking at your insurance, think about things in terms of short-term disability, how you're gonna make sure in terms of those elements to make sure that when you have to take off, you don't think about those things. Mm-hmm. And so as you're thinking about your policies, making sure you do that, find opportunities to um, find savings in terms of, you know with the insurance, with the chemo, with all the other pieces to it, look for those things and making sure that you have someone who, who is also a cancer patient. I think that's that's important. Or it's been through the journey because no one can tell you some of the feelings and things that you may have like someone who's gone through the journey with you.
0: Jill. So what do you think? Thank you, Mayor Burks, for that. Jill, what do you think?
3: Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Um for people listening, the part that you're missing is how genuine your face and your body expressions are while you're while you're telling me those things, which I think is is really important. Um, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um it is a lot. I think I think from my perspective, one thing that's really important to keep in mind is, and I know it's been said today, is how important early detection is um, and how important preventative healthcare is. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I get my physical every year. I don't have family history of breast cancer. I had a breast exam and got the A-OK from my OB back in October, and then in May, it was already a stage three um, carcinoma. So it can happen quickly. And I think just the the breast exams at home and the doing everything you're supposed to do. I think if I if I hadn't been doing those things, I'd be in a much worse situation. So I'm hoping that there's someone who's listening who maybe will just do an extra breast exam in the shower tonight or something. And maybe there's something there that can be caught sooner than it would have been.
0: Wow, That's such important conversations. As we wrap up, I'm gonna go around the virtual room again and I'll start with you, Allie, um, just, for someone listening who has been recently diagnosed or someone may think, you know what? I'm not at that age. Cause I'm only 25. What do you want to tell them?
1: You know, I, I would reiterate what I said before, make sure you understand your risk, know your family history and um, you know, but don't, I, I think Dr. Bear said this too. Uh, a lot of young women um, are behind on healthcare appointments and screenings and Um, maybe have even felt something in the last year that isn't isn't what they were what's what is their normal and I would just say really get back on track with your health and um, don't avoid the uncomfortable conversations you feel like you need to have and don't uh, don't put off your health care anymore.
0: Dr. Baer what do you want to add?
4: I think that one of the common things that people go through when they're diagnosed with cancer is a sense of being out of control. Like all of a sudden their time is different and their life is different and everything kind of feels out of control, maybe even in their body too. And so looking for ways to regain a sense of control can be how you spend your time when you relax, listening to the music, what you decide to eat, an anti-inflammatory diet, how you decide to move your body, what appointments you decide to make and what you decide to read. For instance, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, um, Mm cancer.net, has a whole bunch of evidence-based resources, including financial support for people who are thinking, oh, I can't go in because this is going to be too financially difficult. There is financial support. And so please don't let that be the thing that stops you. So think about what you can control. And maybe, um, as um, Mayor Burks was saying, you end up um, going through this and experiencing some, some sense of resilience, some sense of post-traumatic growth after your cancer experience
0: and so you can bike like jill or break out break dancing like mayor burks that's just that uh, you you break dancing at your appointments that just that that's refreshing i love that
2: My, um the nurses loved it they they got excited is there a video of they they this somewhere? somewhere yeah i did and that's the other piece make sure you document your journey. That was both from a video and just writing because I had to do that with my chemo um, because I couldn't eat certain things based on my chemo sessions. But document the journey because then you can see how far you've come. And I think that's the most important thing, too, is recognize the journey and and go through the journey. Go through it.
0: Mayor Beverly Burks, Jill Lowther, Allie Maureen, Dr. Wendy Bear, thank you so much for this being a part of this special edition of Closer Look, I really appreciate it. Thank you all.
1: Take care, everyone. Thank you.
0: Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.
0: Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information... Visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.